Well, this morning we are going to be opening up and going through Psalm chapter 54. I encourage you to, to turn there and keep a finger in there as we will go back to uh, the text in which this psalm is anchored in in 1 Samuel 23. As you're turning there, I'd like to reflect a little bit about the uncertainty of our times. Our times are very unstable. Have you noticed that? It's not just me, right? It seems that the only certainty in the world is that the world will continue to spin further and further out of control. Consider some of the recent news. Fire swept across the island of Maui, killing 97, with 31 still missing, destroying 2,207 homes, buildings, consuming over 17,000 acres, and totaling $5.5 billion in damage in just three terrifying days. In September, on September 8th, a 6.8 magnitude earthquake rocked the Marrakesh Safi region of Morocco. At almost 3,000 souls perished, and it has affected over 2.7 million people. As devastating as this earthquake was, it's only the second deadliest earthquake that we've experienced this year. I say we as if it has affected me at all. But the first most powerful one was in the Turkey-Syria region and claimed 59,000 lives. And it's left 100 or 1.5 million people homeless and has affected another 14 million people. Just two days after the Moroccan earthquake, massive rainfall led to the destruction of two dams in northern Libya, sending 30 million cubic meters of water to an already waterlogged land leading to the deaths of more than 5,300 and up to 20,000 people. Entire neighborhoods and cities were just swept away in the blink of an eye. Beyond these natural disasters, you have war in Ukraine that has claimed the lives of over 150,000 soldiers and civilians, up to 230,000, depending on who it is that's doing the estimating. You have instability in China, seemingly threatening war over Taiwan and other claimed territories. Throw in the unpredictable North Korean dictator for an added flavor. You have a world that is always seemingly on the edge of an endemic war. You have war in Sudan, Somalia, Ethiopia, ongoing civil wars in Syria, turmoil in Afghanistan, and 20 to 30 more countries where they are presently fighting civil wars or insurgencies. Besides all this here at home, we have the destruction of the opioid epidemic, the fentanyl disaster, drug cartels controlling large portions of South and Central America, flooding over the borders of our own country and touching lives all around us. You have the growing cancer rate. Now, one in three are expected to have cancer at one point in their life. One in five deaths in our own country are as a result of cancer. Add to this list the growing economic uncertainties of our inflation, the instability of energy costs, the growing instability of our elected officials, the wicked depravity of the sexual revolution that is ever increasing wake of destruction, consuming more and more in our country in seemingly younger and younger ages. The instability that our world is experiencing is enough to make your head spin and your heart scream. We are all hit differently by these circumstances, 
And there's a good chance that there has been a season in your own life when disaster has struck you and has left you bewildered. You have been hit from the left and from the right by sources of injustice, of wickedness, or the effects of consequence and consequences of a sinful world. Now, we can have a very New Englandish response to these circumstances, and some might even call them a little bit of hyper-Calvinism, where we can just push out our stiff upper lip and raise the banner of God's sovereignty and say, nothing affects me because God is sovereign. We aren't moved because we know that God is sovereign in all circumstances, and we rejoice in that doctrine, that truth, and that certainty. But what about the seasons where our hearts are still hurting? While we preach to ourselves the truth of God's sovereignty, sometimes the pain is still there. Sometimes the anxiety still rises. Sometimes the tears still well in our eyes as we bear the pain of whatever God's perfect sovereignty has allowed us to experience. This is where the psalm of lament comes to us. The book of Psalms is a book of worship. The authors bring us these songs from many different circumstances in their lives. Some songs are songs of worship and adoration. Some are extolling the greatness of God. Some tell us of the coming Messiah. Some are meant to instruct us. Some are meant to be used in preparation for worship. And there's also a category called the Psalm of Lament. And I think Psalms of Lament can be a little bit confusing to us today as we are tempted to hear a spirit of complaining in them. But they are much more than that. About a third of all the Psalms of the 150 were written within the category of the lament. So you consider that this is probably something that we ought to pay attention to and understand. In these Psalms, the psalmist is lamenting their situation, sometimes individually and sometimes on behalf of a larger community. You have feelings of abandonment from God in Psalm 22, severe illness in Psalm 41, battling disillusionment, Psalm 73, a crisis of faith in Psalm 77. You have Psalms that address the battling of despair and depression, Psalm 88, and grieving over the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 54 is an individual lament on behalf of a treacherous situation that God has allowed David to be in. It isn't just David laying out a list of complaints. This is a heartfelt communication of what grieves the author. This is taking a heart that is weighed down and taking it to the one who understands and knows. Complaining in unbelief is sin. But these laments are undergirded and supported by trusting in God's nature. One commentator said, the experience of anguish and puzzlement in the life of faith is not a sign of deficient faith, something to be outgrown or to be put behind one, but it is intrinsic to the very nature of faith. Now, Psalms of Lament usually contain five sections within them, and the one before us this morning contains all five of these. The first one is the address, which we will see in verses 1 and 2. Now, this isn't your outline, but if you're wanting just to, for your own benefit, uh, to, to write this down, 
You have the address in verses 1 and 2. You have the lament in verse 3. Confidence is displayed in verse 4. A petition is made in verse 5. And praise is made in verse 6 and 7. Out of all of the Psalms of lament, only one of them actually lacks one of these. And it is, interestingly, praise. In Psalm 88, the psalmist does not end the psalm in praise. But in the rest of them, they all include it. Psalms of lament teach us to praise and trust God through difficult circumstances and trying times. Another commentator said, So we also learn obedience and trust through the crises of trial and unanswered prayer. We learn to depend upon God. This is at the heart of these lament psalms. We know this because the psalmist never laments without praise, save Psalm 88. There is always that expression of confidence. In the context of praise, lament and even protest can be an important function of faith. As I said, this is something that we New Englanders can sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable with. The common refrain among us is, I'm all set, I'm all right. Grin and bear it, suck it up, buttercup, move on. Go to sleep, tomorrow's a new day. Rub it off, rub some sand on it. Whatever the words of encouragement may be, we often are called to just withstand the circumstances rather than process them in order to worship the Lord from a pure heart. As we work our way through Psalm 54, we're going to see how David takes his fears, his grief, his anxieties, and his cares to the Lord. And we are going to see four steps of God-dependent prayer so that we can stand firm in seasons of difficulty. Once again, four steps of God-dependent prayer so that we can stand firm in seasons of difficulty. Now, as I told you, the historical context, the setting for which this psalm was written is found in 1 Samuel chapter 23. You can turn there if you want, real quickly move through this passage so that we can understand the mindset that David was experiencing. David is on the run from Saul. David has been anointed king over Israel, but Saul still occupies the throne. And Saul is wanting to kill David, is hunting him down. David is on the run with some of his mighty men, and they have just delivered the city of Keilah, and upon delivering them, David goes to the Lord and says, will these people turn me over to Saul? And the Lord says to him, yes, they will. So David, after delivering them from the Philistines, flees, has to flee the city and is on the run. And he flees to the wilderness of Ziph, which is not a fun place to be. It is a very desolate area. Southeastern Judah below Jerusalem in the wilderness region just west of the Dead Sea. Not a lot grows there when it's not raining. But David flees here. In verse 14 of chapter 23, it says, David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Almost this sense where David could be standing in the middle of a city, waving a banner saying, David is here, but Saul wouldn't be able to find him 
if God wasn't going to allow it. We see in verse 15 through 17 that Jonathan comes and is a blessing to David. And he said to him in verse 17, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. So Jonathan is saying, don't, don't be afraid. Remember the promises of God. God has anointed you king over Israel. Stand firm in this truth. My father knows this. He knows he can't do anything about it. Then the Ziphites in verse 19 betray David. And they go up to Saul and they say, hey, that guy David that you want, he's hiding. We know where he's at. And Saul tells them, Watch him. Don't let him escape. I'm coming. So he is betrayed again by the men of Israel. Pick up in verse 24. They arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. Now stick a finger there and turn to Psalm chapter 54. This is the setting in which this psalm was written. David is at a crossroads. He is being hunted by Saul. Saul is on one side of the mountain. David is on the other. And David cries out to the Lord. And he begins, number one, verse one and two, with a plea for preservation. A plea for preservation. He says, O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. David begins his plea by addressing the Lord. And I invite you as we work our way through, you will see God, David uses multiple names of God as he is addressing him and pleading for a rescue. Here he uses the name of God Elohim. If this were a Hollywood production, our hero would no doubt lead an undermanned and underpowered to the unlikeliest of victories by sheer determination and bravery. But in this situation, David is out of his own possible resources. There is no hope of deliverance from his own resources, but he knows the one whose resources are limitless. True faith watches as God does the impossible. So David cries out to God and says, save me. He's crying for deliverance, preservation, and rescue. He's looking to God as his source of his salvation. And he says, save me by your name. A common basis for action is for the sake of the name of God. Moses, when, when God was threatening to wipe out the children of Israel in the wilderness because of their disobedience, Moses would cry out to God and say, on behalf of your name, do not do this. For your own reputation and glory, do not do this. In this circumstance, David is saying, do this on behalf of your name. 
Solomon would write in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Where do you think Solomon heard this? But from his father, David. David says, vindicate me by your might. Execute judgment and contend for me, for I am being wronged here. David is 100% confident that he is in the right, that he has done nothing wrong. There is no guilt on his behalf. He is not here because he has chosen a sinful path in his life. He has only chosen to trust the promises of God. He is in the right before God. David is asking God to show that the way of the upright is blameless and fruitful. What would it look like if God were to make promises to a person and then break those promises? If a person were to dedicate his life trusting on those promises only for God to break them, what would that show us about the Lord? He appeals to the might of God. He has already accomplished a lot in his life, as we are familiar with. David has done many great works. He has fought with lions and bears. He has slain Goliath. When he was battling with Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, he says, You come to me with a sword, Goliath, with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Later on, he says, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David was well accustomed with not relying on his own power, his own ingenuity, his own strength but relying on the all-powerful, sovereign God who was his strength. Donald Plumer says, David knew that infinite wisdom and power are never in straits. True and lively faith has a peculiar delight in looking to Jehovah when all is dark and none but he can save. This idea of David sitting in a cave, on the side of a mountain, waiting for Saul to come down on him and saying, how's God going to do this? What's God going to do? I'm trusting in his promises. How's God going to deliver by his might, by his power, by his strength? David says, Shema, hear, O Lord, my prayer. David understands when he calls out to the Lord, that the Lord listens and hears him. He is not some piece of rock or wood. He is not a theory, a thought. God is ever present and ready to hear the cry of the righteous. Charles Spurgeon said, this has ever been the defense of the saints. As long as God has an open ear we cannot be shut up in trouble. All other weapons may be useless, but all prayer is evermore available. No enemy can spike this gun. 
David relies on prayer for his deliverance. And he says, give ear to the words of my mouth. This is a picture of an almighty authoritative figure being available to listen to the cries of his created. This goes beyond someone just hearing something, saying, yeah, okay, yeah, I got it, I understand, all right. But to have someone's ear means that they truly hear and understand what it is that you're saying and consider your pleas. To have the ear of someone means this picture of someone coming and sitting down next to you and saying, now tell me, what is it that you're so concerned about? How can we resolve this situation? And David says, I have the ear of the Almighty. He truly hears and listens to the words of my mouth. We've seen David's plea for preservation. Now we see what David is being asked to be delivered from. We see his lament here. Verses, verse 3, we see the prevailing problem. The prevailing problem. Verse 3, strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. David said, strangers have risen against me. Strangers is often a term that you would use to refer to someone who was outside of your nation, who was an alien from another nation, from another country. David here has been betrayed multiple times by his own countrymen. His own king is hunting him down. Now we saw previously when David went to Nob and the priests at Nob helped him and fed him and gave him the, Saul, uh, the sword of Goliath, that Doeg the Edomite, who was an alien, was a stranger, saw and went to Saul and told Saul what they had done. And Saul went and had Doeg slaughter the priests. That was the betrayal of a foreigner. But these, these men are David's own countrymen. These are the ones that he has anointed to rule over. They chose to side with evil rather than good. They were opportunists who had no fear of God. A commentator one man said, anyone at the time in Israel who feared God more than man could not lend himself to be made a tool of Saul's blind fury. God had already manifestly enough acknowledged David. David was the anointed king. That much was clear. But there were many who were wicked, seeking to elevate themselves seeking to advance their own agendas, maybe out of a desire to have more power, maybe out of a desire to protect themselves against Saul's own rage. They betrayed David. 
David never did anything to these people. In fact, he often fought other nations. The Philistines. He would fight the Philistines in order to preserve and to save his own people. On one side, David would have the alien nations around him. On the other side, he would have Saul hunting him down. And then the people whom he was fighting on their behalf would seek an opportunity to betray him. It says these are ruthless men. They are terrifying. They are fearful and violent. The danger is real and tangible. They had just slaughtered the priests at Nob. Saul was clear about his intentions to kill David and his men and anyone who dared assist them. But David's largest concern, you will see, is not necessarily that they seek his life. But he says, they do not set God before themselves. They have no fear of the Lord. David felt, Charles Spurgeon said, David felt that atheism lay at the bottom of the enmity which pursued him. They didn't care about what God had to say. These godless men are pursuing me and they, they, they don't know who it is that they're rebelling against. They think they're hunting me down. They're opposing you, Lord. They have no fear of you. When humanity no longer regards God as sovereign, their regard for humanity is lessened. Man was created in God's image. So with no regard for God, there can be no lasting regard for man. And we see that in our world today. Life is cheap. Humanity is disposable. Because they do not set God before themselves. David's lament is that he feels like he is completely at the mercy of these madmen who only want to slaughter David and his men. His lament is that there is a great injustice occurring. In his view, the righteous are being threatened by the wicked. Those that are driven by the fear of the Lord are being hunted by those who have no fear of the Lord. And then David inserts a selah here. We do not know the, the meaning of this. It is thought that it possibly means that there should be a pause in the singing. This was written in order to be a song sung. Uh, it is thought that possibly this was a cue for people to stop and to reflect and think about what it is that has just been said. David moves on. Thirdly, the powerful providence. The powerful providence of verse 4 and 5. David says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness put an end to them. David recalls our attention about the difficulty of his circumstances to something greater and more sure. Spurgeon again says, he saw enemies everywhere and now to his joy as he looks upon the band of his defenders. 
He sees one whose aid is better than all the help of men. He is overwhelmed with joy at recognizing his divine champion. And he cries, behold, behold, God is my helper. This idea of David being weighed down under, under this lament of danger And he stands up and says, God is my helper. David is now preaching to himself the doctrine of what he knows to be true about God. Rather than reflect on his dismal prospects and terrifying situation, he emboldens his heart with what he knows to be true about God. Here he refers to God as Elohim. He says, God is my helper. David is accompanied with hundreds of men who have pledged their lives to his aid to protect him, but his help is not in their numbers. It is in the Lord. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, David says, "Some Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 18, which Pastor Neil read to us, God, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is the God that David now beholds. He says, the Lord is the upholder of my life. He says, Adonai. Adonai is the upholder of my life. He recognizes that his hand, his life is in God's hands. Saul cannot require it of him. He could sit there in the face of Saul. And if God wanted David to survive, Saul couldn't touch him. David says, he will return the evil to my enemies. Revenge is not on David's mind. In fact, he made it clear repeatedly that he would not touch the Lord's anointed. Multiple times he would spare the life of Saul. He knows that God has promised him the throne and will fulfill his word. He knows the outcome for the wicked and that their time of judgment will come. He says, I'm going to depend and throw myself upon the faithfulness of God. Not to spoil the ending here, but David lives. David escapes. And he goes on to repeatedly spare Saul's life. And it recognizes that God would be the one who would spare his life again and again and again. It's a reminder of who held his life in security that emboldens David. Nothing can happen to me without God's permission. William Plumer said, whatever makes us feel our entire dependence upon God, whatever, whatever makes us feel our entire dependence upon God is good for us. David could not have had this blessed experience of this psalm if Saul and his myrmidons had not sought his life. Myrmidon means cohort, an evil cohort the new favorite word of mine. 
But David says, behold, behold, the Lord is my helper. And he moves on, having instructed his heart to the promise of praise. Verses 6 and 7, the promise of praise. He says, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This, I am going to offer a free will offering to you. Now, in order to do this, he would have to escape his present circumstances. He wants to return and offer a sacrifice to the Lord and escape this situation. And there were five mandated sacrifices that they had to make. And then the feasts came with other sacrifices. And David speaks here about making a sacrifice out of sheer love, not mandated. This is an opportunity for David to say, I love you, Lord, and I worship you. I give you thanks. He doesn't offer to the Lord his duty, but his delight. David is assured of the Lord hearing him. He is looking forward to the opportunity that he will have in the future to show his thanks to the Lord. Now, there are some who think that David would have penned the first few verses while he was hiding from Saul, and that possibly afterwards he wrote these verses once he was delivered. I don't think that is true. I think he was completely confident in the Lord to deliver him. He says, I will give thanks, O Lord, Yahweh, fourth name of God that we see in this short psalm, the faithful covenant promise-keeping God. He says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for it is good. This quote is a fruit of prayer and of the Holy Spirit that the hearer is comforted and rejoiced after prayer. This is the fruit of prayer, the result of prayer. That afterwards, after crying out to the Lord, reminding ourselves of who it is that we are praying to, there is an unyielding comfort that is brought to our hearts to find the rest that our hearts could not find in and of ourselves. Prayer does not fill something that lacks in God, but in us. God wants us to cast our cares upon Him, not because He needs them, but because we need Him. David recounts and says, I understand God has delivered me from every trouble. He's able to look back on his life and see a path of grace and deliverance. Time and time and time again, God has been faithful to deliver him. He recounts God's past faithfulness and also remembers that God has anointed him as king over Israel and he is trusting that God will see to it that that happens. And there is some here, like I said, that God thinks that this is, that some think that this is written after the fact. 
but he is recounting why he is so confident in the Lord. He has shown himself to be true, and he knows he will be true again. He says, my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. David understands that he is the one who will be seated on a throne. He is the one who will rule over these men who have sought to end his life. We do not read once David takes the throne of a vendetta against the men of Ziph. We do not read about the mission that David sent his men out to the village of Keilah after he delivered them, knowing that they were going to deliver him into the hands of Saul. David does not seek retribution when he has the power and authority to be able to do that. Instead, he rules in wisdom, in grace. He says, my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. I picture David sitting on his throne, ruling graciously over some of the very people that sought to end his life. And you see how David handled news of the death of Saul. When a man comes to David and says, good news, I killed Saul, even though he hadn't, thinking that he would be rewarded as similar behavior under Saul probably would have been. And David said, how dare you touch the anointed and had him put to death. It was a pattern in David's life. When he looks in triumph over his enemies, it is not to exercise judgment or revenge, but it is to declare the name of the Lord and the goodness of God. When his eye looks in triumph over his enemies, it is not in pride. It is not in a self-satisfying satisfaction of his own accomplishments. It is because he knows that God has been faithful and that the name of the Lord has been honored. So what happens? Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 23. You might notice that we stopped in the middle of a verse. David was hurrying to get away from Saul in the middle of verse 26. It says that Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place is called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Just as Saul is closing in on him, This picture of David hiding in a cave. Saul, just about to round the corner, and a messenger comes and says, the Philistines are raiding. We must leave. The sovereignty of God. God didn't deliver David through a a battle, a conflict. 
God didn't deliver David through his own resources, David's resources. God works in the ways that God wants to work. I've talked about this previously, but could you imagine being in that village that the Philistines are invading and you're like, what is God doing? Well, turns out he's delivering the future king of Israel. (laughs) You didn't know that at the time, but that's what God was doing. God was working through difficult circumstances. God was accomplishing something. God was teaching David to trust and rely on him. God was preserving his future king. God was preserving the line of David. God was preparing the way for the Messiah. It would be very unlikely that any of us would face a situation quite like this. I don't think any of us at any point in the future are going to be finding ourselves in a cave with someone bearing down on them, preparing to kill them in just a moment. I don't think any of us are going to face that situation. Praise the Lord. But that is not why God has included this in his word to prepare us for that unique, exact situation in our life. God has included this and inspired David to pen these words because we too are threatened to despair in seasons of our lives. We too find ourselves in incredibly difficult situations. We too find ourselves threatened to fear, anxiety, worry, reduced to tears, wondering, is this what God is allowing in my life? It is an amazing thought to think that when Jesus removed himself to pray, he prayed psalms of lament. Our Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, would not have ignored these psalms We know that he quoted them when he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus studied the Psalms of Lament. Jesus prayed the Psalms of Lament. If Jesus needed them, don't you think we do? Don't you think we ought to become familiar with the heart of the Lament? to bring to the Lord our deepest concerns, our greatest fears, our tallest anxieties. Jesus experienced the physical trials of life. He felt isolation on the cross. Jesus recognized the wickedness of humanity. He felt the destructive forces in the world. And he brought his cares to God. Now, the likelihood that someone is going to be hunting us down to murder us is likely low, but there are still circumstances that so often seem insurmountable in our lives. And there are dangers that are imposing and can cause our hearts to tremble in fear. We ought to familiarize ourselves with these psalms of lament. God has told us that he wants to hear our anxieties. 
God wants to hear your concerns. God wants to know your fear. He doesn't want us to tell him because he doesn't know what they are, but because he wants us to use the process of prayer to cry out to him and come to an end of ourselves and yield it to him. We must learn to pray like this. We must learn to pray like this before we have to pray like this. I've heard pastors say that it is better to teach in times of health and worship in times of sickness than it is to have to teach in times of sickness. I've heard pastors give testimonies of being able to worship with someone on their deathbed and to worship with them because they are testifying to what they know to be true of God. And that is a much more pleasant circumstance than sitting next to someone who has confessed to know the Lord, but does not know how to deal with the difficulties of life and how to rest on the sovereignty of God. So today, learn to trust the sovereignty of God. When we learn about who God is, when we open up the word to, to yield from it, the truth of who God has revealed himself to be, we are storing up for ourselves seeds of knowledge that will bear fruit in times of trouble, that we will be able to rely on, that we will be able to turn to and to cry out to the Lord in full faith, and full knowledge that he has our ears and he is listening to us. It is in these times that we learn about who God is so we can trust him in the darkness. He is a God who wants to hear our cries, who wants to bear our anxieties so that we can honor him with our trust so that we can praise him with our thanks and so that we can treasure him as our hope. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for giving to us these Psalms that have so richly given to us a pattern of prayer for us to follow in our lives in times of difficulty, in times of suffering, in times of care, worry, anxiety, and certainty that you have equipped us with what we need to bear hope in you, to place our trust in you so that we can praise you and give you the thanks that you so richly deserve. We praise your name. Amen.